I was working for the Times of London and they called me and said, we would like you to come back now. We've got a job for you. We want you to do in London. And I had a strong sense of throwing the ball onto the roulette wheel and thinking I'm going to stay in America and let's see what happens. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's show, she's no fortune teller, but it's her job to see the future. Joanna Coles, the first ever chief content officer of Hearst, is the woman behind your favorite magazines and the only woman on SNAP's board of directors. In this episode, she's giving us a glimpse beyond those glossy pages. Joanna Coles, welcome to No Limits. My pleasure to be here. I'm thrilled to have you. You have such an incredible background in so many different areas, especially in the magazine and content business. You're the chief content officer at Hearst, former editor-in-chief of Marie Claire, Cosmopolitan. I started out in The Guardian in the UK, actually, and then they posted me to New York, which was, of course, a British correspondent's dream to be here. It's the best foreign posting you can get. Yeah, right, because a lot of the other foreign postings are in places that you might not actually want to live your life. Well, you would get shot at and uh, unlikely to be shot at in New York. Not impossible, but unlikely. <laughs> I hope, yeah, I hope you're right about that. You grew up in England. I did. It seems to me that you were a woman on a mission from an early age. Well, do tell. What was the mission? Well, I read that when you were 12 years old, you created a magazine with a friend and you sent a copy to Queen Elizabeth. I did. And happily, her lady-in-waiting wrote back and said the Queen very much enjoyed reading it and was looking forward to other issues. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, God, now I've got to produce subscription-worthy issues and send them to Buckingham Palace. Uh, that was all the encouragement I needed to go into the media. So at 12 years old, you knew this is what you wanted. Well, it's interesting. It struck me that actually, if you really want to understand what your passions are in midlife, which is where I hope I am now, not towards the end of my life, um, although, of course, one never knows, you can go back through your childhood and mine it for clues. And I realized there were two clues there. One I had done I had created my own magazines and I had also written for the local paper, but I also loved making dolls clothes. I had a series of dolls and trolls that I would spend the weekend making all sorts of outrageous outfits for. And when people said to me, goodness, you went to Marie Claire, what on earth uh, were you thinking? Did you even care about fashion? I realized actually Marie Claire was the perfect iteration of my passion for creating clothes and loving clothes and loving how they express people and also journalism. So you're making clothes. You are creating magazines as a child. What were some of the early influences in your life? Your father was a teacher. My father was an English teacher. My mother was a social worker. They both worked long hours. And so I was left to my own devices some of the time, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Can I just add that all my clothes that I made for my dolls and trolls were hand sewn? I was not very good with machinery. I'm still not very good with machinery. Uh, But I was quite good with the old needle and thread, which still comes in useful occasionally. (laughs) And I read a lot. I read a lot of stories, a lot of books. My mum had a ton of magazines in the house. I love women's magazines from the age of about nine or ten because they had these extraordinary stories about 
are middle-aged women in them, which I found fascinating. And they were everything from their problems with their husbands to their kids <laughs> uh, to their makeover stories. And I was absolutely riveted by them, actually. And I just love stories. And I read all the time. Of course, this was pre-internet. I'm dating myself, but it really was. And I just read enormous amounts. Every uh, every Saturday morning, actually, I would go to the library and take books out. And then often, probably twice or three times a month, I would go to the bookstore and buy a book. And I would just always read it. And, you know, I can remember the excitement of roaring home, throwing myself on my bed and just devouring a book. Looking backwards on your career, it appears you've made some very smart, deliberate choices. But I always think it's funny how we we oftentimes can say that in retrospect, but when you're going through it, you don't necessarily know that every choice is the right step. How did you early on navigate that path and start making the choices to put you in the position that you're in today? Well, very early on, I started writing for what was known as the Junior Post, which was part of the Yorkshire Post, our local paper, very, very good local paper a bit like the Philadelphia Inquirer or the Sacramento Bee, an important um, sort of cultural milestone for everybody that lived in that area. A touch point, really, touchstone, whatever the expression is. Milestone, touchstone, touch point, mile point, whatever. And um, I realised actually from the age of, of 10 that I could get paid £2, which at the time felt like an inordinate sum of money, for writing. And that got me very excited because writing was fun to do. I didn't find it so difficult. Uh, and, Ten years old. Well, they had this brilliant thing which encouraged kids to write their stories, the Junior Post. So I started toiling away for that. And then in my um, teenage years, Britain was very good for having all sorts of literary competitions, essay competitions. I won a couple of those, which meant that I got trips to London as part of the prize. Again, incentive to... Uh, to move away from home and try and earn some money. I loved politics. And at the time when I was growing up, politics was really interesting. I mean, it's pretty damn interesting <laughs> now. Um, but if you think from through the lens of a young woman growing up in Britain, we suddenly had Margaret Thatcher. She was the first female leader. And in fact, there hasn't been one since. Uh, and she was an extraordinary steeple on the landscape politically. I mean, just an extraordinary moment in time. And so as a young woman, I was fascinated by her, responded to her, managed to meet her. And that How did felt you end like... up meeting her? Was it about a story that you were working on? or I met her because I was chosen to be part of a delegation from Yorkshire, which for those who haven't been there is really like the Texas of Britain. It's proud and true. And there are probably more arms than you would want to count. Um <laughs> uh, I went to London to represent Yorkshire as part of a young people's parliament, it was called. And Margaret Thatcher was one of the politicians. She'd just taken over the Conservative Party as leader. And I remember meeting her and just being sort of awestruck, really, by this tremendous sense of history and presence. And though I didn't love her policies at the time, I look back and now realise she really was a gargantuan political figure I realised that it was a really interesting time to cover news and I loved the idea of it. And they were really anxious to have more women in Fleet Street. And I remember my first interview actually with the Daily Telegraph, which was the very first newspaper I, I worked for. And the editor said to me, well, you're under 30 and you're a woman, you'll do. And I was happy as Larry. Now, of course, I would take him to the HR department. Right. But at the time, uh, this was all all I needed. So you make it into your first big job in the industry. What's the biggest surprise? Well, the biggest surprise actually working on Fleet Street was that 
women weren't allowed to order the drinks in the bars on Fleet Street. It was a very, very uh, patriarchal environment, shall we say. And literally, women were allowed to drink in the bars, but you couldn't order a drink. And of course, I had two or three female friends because it was still incredibly male-centric, a bit like I imagine Wall Street or even Uber uh, to feel like now. And of course, my friends and I, truth be told, were thrilled we didn't have to order a drink because it meant we never had to pay for a drink. <laughs> so we felt very treated by our male colleagues. And again, in retrospect, I now realise this was deeply sexist and I was being oppressed. But at the time, I was thrilled that I didn't have to waste money on drinks and I could have my two chaste glasses of wine and then cycle happily home, my wallet not being open for the evening. So you're in this environment. You're one of very few women How did you early on start making the types of contacts that are necessary to be both a great journalist, but also to move up in the world of journalism? Honestly, the only quality you really need to be a decent journalist, and I would never proclaim that I was, uh, you know, I was not exactly Woodward and Bernstein, but I tried to do my bit, uh, is extreme curiosity. And I have never met a question I didn't have another question to. If a man walks into a bar and he's only got one leg, I'm the first person to say, good Lord, what happened to the other leg? Uh, I, I just love understanding what's going on around me. And so I just had hundreds of questions. And I think if people know that you're genuinely interested and you're genuinely trying to get to the bottom of something, they will be helpful. And so that was really mm-hmm. my experience. Just ask a lot of questions. I still ask a lot of questions. I always want to be the person in the room that knows the least. That's a really interesting point because I think that it, it it definitely is something that I feel more comfortable with now in my career than early on in my career as a journalist and, and in my career prior to journalism. It's a fearful thing to know the least because if you come across as the person who knows the least, sometimes it can hit you in the wrong way. It can harm you. But as a journalist, if you're not asking those simple questions, oftentimes you're not getting the most important answers in the conversation. Well, and the other thing that you learn, and I've learned this over time, especially with people that in retrospect, you look back and in fact, they were saying something completely different than what you thought they were saying. Sure. Is that people will go to inordinate lengths to actually hide what they're trying to tell you mm-hmm. or, or or hide things which are sometimes hiding in plain sight. And so the ability to ask simple questions and to keep on asking questions when people are obfuscating is, I think, really important. And I, you know, I can remember a couple of uh, meetings, actually, funnily enough, one with Elliot Spitzer when I was working at New York Magazine, where he came in and talked at a group of us for an hour without taking a single breath. And I remember when he left thinking, that man has something to hide. He just doesn't speak in a way that you can, A, understand what he's saying and B, have any room for questions. And and you begin to understand there's a pattern there uh, and you see it across public servants, you see it across people working in industry um, and you begin to pick up on it. I was on the air live on CNBC when the Elliot Spitzer news first broke. Oh, you were? How extraordinary. What an amazing moment. It was. It was this moment of, wow, this this person who had been built up so greatly and also was was hated by certain people as well. It was the complete unraveling. It was the unraveling. And it was also his hypocrisy in arguing against not taking prostitutes across state lines, which in the end, I think people found hard to stomach. And that was the most interesting moment of it, that something he had campaigned against, he was actually indulging in. 
on that point, not specific to him, but in the world that you live in, what percent of the time do you feel like what we see is the thing that you see behind the scenes? Well, it's a great question. And I think what you're seeing increasingly now is that there's much less gap than there used to be, that what millennials and Gen Zers have really rewarded is uh, authenticity. And I think that's because they grew up in an era of great hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. And as journalism has become... Uh, less reverential. And as there have become many more media platforms, you begin to see that the person who is in public as he or she is in private is going to be the person that wins and has the less, the least to fear. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, who cares whether or not Elliot Spitzer had an affair? It was the hypocrisy of it that upset people, that and the fact that it turned out he didn't have any allies. Um but i think the i think the public and the private face being the same is where you end up winning as a celebrity and the fact that celebrities have taken on a lot of their own social media and feel free i mean vin diesel is a very good example of someone who i think is still the most followed celebrity on facebook certainly was at one point and what he did to do that was to wake up every morning and just take a picture of his face first thing in the morning and people loved it because they sensed that this had not been put together by a crew this was really vin diesel regardless whether or not you find him a compelling actor or not. But here was a man who you're used to seeing in a glossy, shiny, very appealing way, actually revealing his raw self. And I think that the genius of social media when it's done well is to allow you into a celebrity's life and understand them a bit more. And you can see that for the followers with, you know, in the millions, that's what they've managed to do. How do you think about that in your own life in terms of what the expectation is today? For example, you're also on Snapchat's board of or Snapping's board of directors, the only female, as well as running Hearst as the chief content officer. How do you think of that in terms of what you should be putting out there and how much of yourself you should be sharing with people versus keeping your own privacy? Well, I'm a great one for actually not oversharing. I think people overshare all the time. So I'm pretty careful about what I do share. And I try to share moments that I think will be useful to other people. So, oh, my God, my hair's a disaster. Oh, my God, I'm wearing a white suit. Can you believe I just spilled this glass of, you know, iced coffee down myself? Those kind of (laughs) moments I'm happy to share because I feel that those are the moments that actually uh, help you bond with other people. I'm not going to share uh, confidential information I have. I'm not going to share a friend's secret. I'm not going to share whatever I'm talking to my children about for the most part because they didn't ask for that to be shared. And frankly, it's not that much interest to other people. But I'm happy to share sort of silly moments. And I'm fascinated when people do overshare because in the end, uh, I think they often come to regret it. I think Mm -hmm. it's important to keep a level of privacy because you can um, experiment there and and have more fun. And I often think it must be very difficult for politicians to govern now because everything is so relentlessly uh, poured over that it's hard to find a moment to fail in. And I always encourage young people when I meet them Uh, to not put everything out there on Facebook because you don't always want it coming back to haunt you. And it's all right to say one thing and do another in private. It's much harder to do that if you've put it out there. And And we evolve as people. 
we evolve, we change. It's one of the reasons I love Snap so much, that it's not following you around with a little clipboard of everything you ever said or did. It disappears. It's gone. Poof. <laughs> Heaven. I always say with Snapchat, um, and this is not an endorsement, but I've always personally felt like... You can endorse like... it. Feel free to endorse it. <laughs> well, as a journalist, I won't go there, but I will say that of all the social media apps, and I'm on all of them, and I enjoy them for different reasons, but Snapchat has been, from the beginning, the place where I feel I can be the most myself, where I can joke around and, you know, have a laugh with my sister or my husband and post something that I just, you know, it's fleeting. And, uh, you know, I have my limitations on anything that I would post, but I just feel like it's the one place where I can be the goofiest and weirdest and it's all good. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And one of the reasons I find it so appealing is I think of it as uh, the laughing social media, that you're not performing for an audience. You're not right. doing it to drive clicks or fake friends yes. or followers. You're doing it to share with your real friends. And you can be silly and funny and it's not going to haunt you. I'm interested in this idea of the authenticity and how you, in turn, create magazines and content around that ideology. Because on the one hand, there is social media and you have Vin Diesel, for example, waking up and taking these pictures of himself. But if you were to fill magazines with that type of content, do you believe that people would, and and I understand it's not just about the magazine, the actual physical copy, it's about what people consume online now as well. But do you believe that people would buy them in the same way? And how do you translate what is appealing in social media to what might be appealing as a content creator as well? Well, I think of it like I'm the coach of the American sports team for the Olympics. And we have various races that we want to win. And our digital media is very much the sprint. It uses different muscles than other races. And you're on a different diet for it. The magazine is more like the marathon race. It's longer. It requires a different kind of mental stamina to produce. You're on a different training regimen and you're eating different foods. And my job is to take the team to the Olympics and come back with as many medals as I can. So you want people who are responding to events in different ways. And the magazine is much more about what are we going to be thinking about in three months, six months, a year's time. And that's where magazine makers are really cultural soothsayers. And that's really a fun place to be. And I think increasing people are understanding the value of switching off a little bit or at mm-hmm. least putting the phone down for half an hour. You never have to power down a magazine. You can read it on the plane. You can read it in the bath. You can enjoy real beautiful photography, which is very hard to do on a cell phone. And I think we have to assume that pretty much everybody is mobile now. I know I never use my desktop. Um, and so I think the real printiness of print, the fabulosity of magazines is something that we can celebrate even more. They're collector's items. You leave them out on your coffee table or by your bedside table to declare the membership of your tribe. You might read L. you might read Harper's Bazaar. I hope you're reading the new Airbnb mag that we've just created, which is really for travellers, not tourists. And if you're staying at an Airbnb, it says something very different about you than if you're staying at a Marriott hotel. Now, they both have their merits. But if you are an Airbnb traveller and you're reading Airbnb magazine, you are very definitely a more modern traveller than you are if you are reading, say, Condé Nast traveller. Six months from now, what are we going to be talking about, Joanna? Well, that's a very good question. I'm not going to give away what we're going to be talking about in six months' time, but I do have a good idea. 
Okay, well, I, I look forward to reading all about it. Um, in terms of SNAP and the world of technology, you know there's a deficit of, of women. You know there's a deficit of funding that goes to women. How are you approaching that inside of Snapchat? And what are you telling uh, Evan and company about hiring more women and encouragement and things like that? Well, I don't think it's true that companies don't want to hire more women. I think companies, especially in Silicon Valley, are very cognizant of the fact they want to hire more women and more people that reflect the population. The difficulty comes really in the educational chain. And what becomes absolutely crucial is getting more young women into math, into engineering and into the STEM industries. And we have been really diligent about looking for those people um, and trying to figure out where are the colleges with great courses where we can find women who are, you know, where they are, where are they studying? I mean, the awful truth is of the people studying engineering right now, only 19% are are women. And so there's Mm -hmm. actually a lot of competition for those women. So how do we make ourselves super competitive? How do we ensure that women have real uh, opportunities when they get to the company. But the idea that, that companies don't want to hire women is not true. It's that it's really, it's harder exponentially to find women with STEM backgrounds than it is men. I mean, if you go into the medical or the nursing or the healthcare communities, you will find lots more women because women are spending more time training there than than men are. Uh, But there's a terrible imbalance and we are very conscious of it and working really hard. Uh, We have a great group at Snap called the Lady Chillers that I I talk to. And um, it's something that I think all Silicon Valley companies or all tech companies are really conscious of. You watch what's happened at Uber Mm -hmm. and how actually I, I think the Uber culture wouldn't have happened in New York City. I think it's a specifically Silicon Valley uh, kind of culture, actually, because I think women in New York are probably there may be a few more of us and we may be tougher in terms of just taking it on and saying this is not OK. You're also working with Freeform on a new television show, which I am extremely excited about, the bold type. And the reason I'm excited about it is it really celebrates female friendships in the workplace uh, and it celebrates a different kind of female boss Uh, than we have seen on television before. And one of the things that really disturbed me thinking about popular culture is how few images there are, how few storylines there are around working women. Actually, even in a show like Modern Family, which is an ABC show, probably one of the best written shows on television, what made it modern, especially in the first few seasons, was the fact they had a gay couple in it. There was nothing modern about the second wife with Sofia Vergara living with Jay Pritchett. Uh, the gay couple were modern and they'd adopted an Asian child, but the family at the centre of it, through which the lens through which most of us related, was the very classic Dunphy family. Very, very funny. Uh, is there a better actor on telly than Ty Burrell? Not absolutely sure. Um, but oddly, it was completely unmodern. 
despite the title, because Claire didn't work. And actually, if you look across most American families, 40% now are headed by women. But men and women in families work because most families need two incomes. So I was struck by this. And then when Claire eventually goes to work, she works for her father's Mm -hmm. company and she's slightly hapless at it. And I thought, why are there no great images of working women? Television is full of heroic male cops, heroic male firefighters. Occasionally there's a there's a woman thrown in there, but you you sense the tokenism in law and order. You sense the tokenism of it. And uh, the woman always falls for the man or she falls for the killer. And you don't see, for the most part, really aspirational role models. Now, I'm absolutely not saying I am in any way an aspirational role model. But what I did find throughout my career was that I was helped far more by very intelligent, supportive, experienced women than I was ever uh, damaged by, you know, in the workplace, Mm. if I can say that on ABC radio, and I think I just did. (laughs) And um, that's what I wanted to reflect, the fact that actually there are tons of women out there helping each other. And the more senior you become, the more you come across these women who uh, talk about work in a completely different way than the way the popular culture does, which is how do women juggle? How can you have a big job and have a family? And what nobody says is, well, men have done it all the time. And actually, it's much easier the more senior you are because you get paid more and you have more support. And so that's what I wanted to try and get at in the bold type, as well as these incredible female friendships uh, that are formed when you are young, starting out together, failing together and succeeding together. What are you like as a boss? Uh, completely monstrous. Uh, <laughs> I hope that I'm clear. I hope I'm clear. I hope I'm fair, and I hope that I'm vaguely amusing. I mean, the good thing about doing what I've been doing as a boss is we—you can't take any of it too seriously. I mean, you take the deadline seriously, you take the revenue very seriously, especially at something like Cosmo, which for the longest time really was an incredibly important pillar within the Hearst Company. Uh, What Helen Gurley Brown did reinventing it in the 1960s, coinciding with the invention of the pill or the FDA approval of the pill, I should say, uh, was quite astonishing. Uh, But I hope I'm fair. I hope I'm clear. And I hope people have fun. What do you do when an employee is not having fun or adding to what you need them to add to? How do you manage that? I would usually talk to them and say, you know, seems like this isn't a great match. You know, can I help you think about the next stage of your career? Uh, Is this the right place for you? What do you want to focus on? Often you're better off making a call and helping someone move on. And if you can't do that, then encouraging them to think about trying something new. How have you managed those choices for yourself personally along the way, making those decisions to do something new, to go from Mary Claire, for example, to Cosmopolitan or to leave the Daily Telegraph? Well, I think the hardest choice I probably had in my career where I actually feel like I I sat down and really thought this is sliding doors was when I had been here for four years Uh, And at the time, I was working for the Times of London, and they called me and said, we would like you to come back now. We've got a job for you we want you to do in London. And I had a very strong sense of, well, the water may close over me. I could go back to London or I could stay in America, join the American media and 
I had a strong sense of throwing the ball onto the roulette wheel and thinking I'm going to stay in America and let's see what happens. And what I didn't want was to go back to a world where I knew roughly what would happen. And it would all have been, I think, good. Um, but I knew the people I would be working with. I knew the organizations. And while it would have been comfortable, it wouldn't have felt as perhaps as exciting as the unknown of staying in the American market, which is what I chose to do. And I'm so glad I did. And then to end up editing Cosmo was just, you know, so much fun. This enormous magazine with 61 international editions and an incredible platform through which to talk to women. And turns out that, you know, who knew women were going to end up having to fight for some of the things they had taken for granted. And I'm very proud that Cosmo became a really um, important voice in that political conversation around young women's rights. When you look back on your career, in addition to that difficult decision, what have been some of the toughest lessons you've had to learn? Uh, Well, what are the toughest lessons? Good, very good question. I think You know, the times you choose to wing it are probably not your most proud moments. I never look back on times and and wish I had worked less. I often look back and think, God, if only I'd done a bit more work around that. Or you. if I'd done a bit more research. Well, when you did you wing research it? More. Oh, God, no. I've wung, I've wung it. I've <laughs> winged it many times. And often I would go into meetings without having done the proper research or I'd gone to interview people without doing the right amount of research. And that's the moment when it's very easy for people to snow you or to tell you something which and you go off down a path which in fact turns out to be exactly the opposite of the path you should have been going down Mm. Uh, so I could definitely say I've I've gone into meetings ill-prepared do you ever though after an interview in particular I do this all the time where I think about that interview after the fact I think about it before but then I ruminate on it after the fact and there's always one or two questions that I think wow I wish I had gotten to this question I talked to Kara Swisher about this too and and I know she's interviewed you before you had your famous moment at the recode conference recently she is tough man boy she's She's very tough but even Kara Swisher, which was heartening to me, said that there's every once in a while, you know, you think about an interview and you wish that you had asked a particular question. Now, maybe after the fact, after you think more about it, you realize, I wish I had asked this thing. Well, when I was doing print interviews, um, which is different to doing radio interviews in that you have the opportunity to listen back to it when you're writing it up. And I was always I was always fascinated, actually, when I came to America, you realize that American journalists behave very differently. You know, they have fact checkers and also they have people who transcribe tapes. In Britain, we never had the resources to do that. Mm. But actually, it's a great benefit to transcribe your own tape, because in the transcribing of it, you often hear a different conversation than you had when you were actually sitting with the person. And you often hear the moments when you should have followed up, but you didn't follow up because you were either anxious to get on to the next subject or you weren't listening properly because you were worrying or you were paying attention to what they were doing physically or you were jotting down what they were wearing. And I I remember a couple of times bottling out of things which I wished I'd asked, but whatever, it's water under the bridge. Is that how you look at all of it? When, When something doesn't go right, how do you approach that failure? Well, I think you try and address it for the next time. So I do remember, I do actually remember interviewing Hillary Clinton for Marie Claire and not asking her what would happen if Bill were to continue having an affair 
And how would that impact you if you were to run for office? Because at the time, this was 2008, I remember interviewing her. And I wished I had asked her the question. And she's a very difficult person to interview because she puts a lot of sort of barriers up around her. And I bottled out of asking her the question, which is frankly quite pathetic in retrospect. But I just didn't want to ask her the question. And I felt like, oh, God, I should be French about this. Who cares if he has an affair? Um, But I wished I'd asked her the question. If you were building a media company from the ground up today, what would it look like? Well, it's a great question. And who knows, a large part of it would be probably video based. A large part of it would be digital. Uh, There would definitely be a print component because I see how much people crave the specialness of print and also how ephemeral digital content is and how people long to have things to hold on to. And I remember, you know, about five, six years ago, everybody was sounding the death knell of books and saying, oh, e-publishing is taking over. And it turns out that, A, not only do you absorb material differently when you actually read it and you hold it in your hands and you read a page of print as opposed to scanning something online. Uh, But people actually like to keep a book. They know how to find their way through a book. They know where something was if they want to go back to it. And they like a record of what they've done. And I think to assume that everything would only be digital would be a big mistake. I don't think that um, a business is necessarily sustainable when it's all all um, just a pure play content digital company. What's been the best moment of your career so far? I think when you get to hire someone that you think is really talented Mm. and that you think that maybe the first two or three times they said no to you and you circle back and eventually you get them on board, that always brings great pleasure. And putting, I think, teams together of people that when they're working well um, really you know, perform above anybody else in the industry. I think, you know, when you think of the machine of something like Cosmopolitan, when we had our sort of top team in, you know, it felt like the best ran or best, um, the best, most creative team in in sort of magazines. And that's really exciting. And it's about building the chemistry between people so they can all relax and come up with ridiculous ideas and then execute. When you see that all clicking. Such fun. I mean, you can see the electricity. It's so much fun. Everybody's talking about it. And that's the the moment when you feel you're entering the culture and changing the conversation. And the worst moment for you? I can't be dwelling on those. I mean, you know, every other day I would come in and be in the fetal position about something. But then you curl up, you give yourself two minutes in a ball and then you get right back up again. Is that the secret? I think it's okay to have a little time to acknowledge when you've effed up (laughs) and um, and to try and think about why did I do that? Why did I make that decision? Why did I say that thing? What was I feeling that led to me doing that? Um, and then to, you know, have a cup of tea and move swiftly on. Worst advice. We all talk about best advice. The worst advice you've been given. And and I also would be interested to know the worst advice you've given, if you know it. I think probably the worst advice along the um, years would be the sort of regular advice that women probably get, which is slow down, slow down. You don't need to do this now. And actually, I wish that a lot of the time I'd hurried up. Really? 
When when along the way do you really wish, like if you could pinpoint a few moments, when do you wish you had hurried up? Well, I wish I had come to America earlier in my career than I did do. And it was hard to get to be a foreign correspondent in Britain, especially actually for women. It was harder for women than for men. Uh, And I wish that I had been pushier about doing that. Uh, So that's definitely one. Were you afraid that if you were pushy, that it would harm you in some way? Or why weren't you more pushy? I think I wasn't pushy enough because I was nervous about not being able to do the job. So I was Mm. worried that if I pushed and I got here and I couldn't do the job, I would flame out and no one would ever hire me again. Uh, And so I came at a time when I felt confident I could do the job. And what I should have done is come at a time when I wasn't confident I could do the job and do it anyway. And I think that probably is the difference between a male and female in their 20s, that the men were roaring around all over the world. And I was sitting there thinking, I've got to pay my dues. Uh, As much for my own uh, satisfaction as anybody else's, to be fair. Um, So that's probably uh, advice that people were giving me that I sort of took on board. And uh, otherwise, I think people have been pretty generous with great advice, actually. I may have foolishly chosen not to take it, but um, I don't feel I've had a slew of of really bad advice. And do you actually recall the worst advice you've given somebody? No, but I'm sure there's a lot of it out there. You'd have to ask other (laughs) people that. Yeah, no, no, do write in, do write in, and I'll try not to do it again. I'm sure I've given lots of people very bad advice. I hope not, but I'm pretty sure I must have done. For those listening right now who would love to follow in your footsteps, what is your number one piece of advice to people who are hoping to get into this industry? I think, you know, the same advice you would give anybody in any industry. First piece of advice, don't be an Just don't, you know. People know who they are and they avoid you and they won't reward you and... That reputation Uh, is hard to shake. It's really hard to shake. And everybody knows them and everybody avoids them. Um, So that would be the first. And that's in life, not just in the office. And in terms of being in journalism and the new media landscape, be curious. Be really curious. Never be afraid to ask a question. And, you know, if you're thinking about asking a question, someone else won't know the answer either. Well, I really enjoyed this conversation, Joanna. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. All right, it's now time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of our listeners who's building something of her own. And this week's No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, Caitlin Gleason, who was nominated by No Limits listener Solange Pittet. Caitlin is the CEO and founder of Eligible, which is a company that provides a software service that lets healthcare providers automatically determine a patient's insurance coverage. You know, that whole part about going to the doctor and trying to figure out what your insurance coverage is and whether or not it's covered? Well, this helps to eliminate all of the errors and speed up the process of healthcare billing. Hallelujah. Caitlin grew up in Long Island, New York. She graduated from Stony Brook University, where she supported herself throughout college by working a job in sales. She got into the healthcare IT space when she joined a company called Dr. Chrono, and she says it was through her experience that she fell in love with the process of building a company and bringing a product to market. It was also during this time that she discovered that many doctors were often waiting on thousands or even millions of dollars of insurance payments because of incorrect paperwork or processing delays, which gave her an idea. With $5,000 in the bank, she quit her high-paying job and spent nine months developing her idea that ultimately became eligible and was then accepted to a program at Y Combinator 
Y Combinator is what's known as a startup incubator. They let startups come and get advice and mentorship from the people who run Y Combinator so that they can really get them off the ground. So at Y Combinator, she was able to raise $1.6 million to build her company, and now they've raised over $24 million in venture funding. Today, they have over 2,000 insurance companies in their database. That covers more than 90% of the insured U.S. population, so they can tell you basically right away whether or not your insurance is covered. Caitlin's been featured in Forbes 30 Under 30, Healthcare, and Fast Company's Most Creative People in Business, and she was recently selected for Crane's 40 Under 40 Class of 2017. Caitlin, congratulations, continued success. We wish you all the best, and Solange, thank you so much for this awesome nomination. We're looking forward to our next doctor's visit. Thanks to you. I'm loving reading over your emails, loving hearing about all of your stories out there. So make sure to keep sending them. If you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as the Entrepreneur of the Week, send me your nomination to no limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of No Limits. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review. It really does help to spread the word. And you can follow along with us behind the scenes on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat at Rebecca Jarvis. And join the conversation using the hashtag No Limits. Quite original, I know. And thanks so much to the team here at ABC who makes this happen week after week. Taylor Dunn, Michelle Bancardo, Annie Osakwe, Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Hecht, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones here at ABC Radio. Have a great week, everyone. Take care. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.